Welcome to the Anthology Church of Studio City audio podcast, bringing you the messages and other audio content from Anthology Church. Sunday, February 22nd, 2015, we finish our First John series with a message called Assurance in Life Forever. We apologize for some video and audio problems we had during the service. There will be no video podcast this week. Well, we're going to start off our message this morning, everyone, looking at the final verses of 1 John. This is 1 John five, thirteen through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we're from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the Oscars are tonight, everyone, and uh, we're looking forward to having people over at our house to watch together and enjoy uh, the show. It's a wonderful time to, uh, yeah, have fun together. Uh, we play some Oscar bingo, which makes it more exciting, and then see something our city is really interested and invested in. There was a movie that came out in 1992, and when I was looking it up, I thought for sure it did not win any Academy Awards. But as I looked it up this week, I realized, well, it actually, it actually did. It won... Uh, an Oscar for the best visual effects. Well, if you're older, it came back. It came out way back in 1992. It was a movie called Death Becomes Her. Does anyone remember this? It had Bruce Willis, Goldie Hawn, the amazing Meryl Streep, of course. Really quite a cast for the time and for now. And if you remember, the movie was about two women competing for the love of one man, Bruce Willis. And there was also, you know, I think money and a fortune involved. He was a rich guy. Well, they both end up taking a magic potion that gives them eternal life and eternal youth, perfect young bodies, with the consequence that they will live forever in those bodies. But the catch was they had to take care of their bodies because if anything happened to them, then they would live in that state forever. When I was younger, I was both freaked out by and fascinated by the movie. You know, because it's wild on the fascination side to think about living forever, right? especially living in forever in a state where you are the peak you physically. You're never aging, looking perfect, right? You know, in modern-day Los Angeles, we do this in artificial ways, right? Injecting ourselves with Botox, dyeing our hair, you know, freezing the fat off, which I hear on the radio all the time, getting a tummy tuck, whatever it might be, ways that we try to delay the effects of aging and eventually death. But I remember being freaked out by it, as a kid as well, because at the end of the movie, both women end up in terrible states. Their bodies practically destroyed from the humorous fighting. It's a dark comedy, after all, uh, from the humorous fighting that takes place, and they end up in that state 
with their bodies messed up. I think one of them is uh, decapitated and her head is there. So they end up in that state forever. Can you just imagine the horror of being stuck like that and having no hope of it ever ending forever and ever? Just creepy. And yet still, even today, the concept of eternal life, of the afterlife, of heaven, is still in our collective conscious so much, isn't it? There have been a rush of books lately with stories of people who've purportedly been quote-unquote, to heaven and back through near-death experiences. One of them was made into a movie last year called Heaven is for Real. I think it had Greg Kinnear in it. You know, and a side note as an official statement from Anthology Church on these sort of books and stories, one of the young boys came out recently that was in one of these stories and said, hey, I I made the whole thing up and I'm sorry I shouldn't have done it. So, Take those stories with one gargantuan grain of salt, okay? So whenever, you know, maybe this will happen. This happens in the Oscars. Uh, We might see this tonight as well. But a lot of times when someone passes away in pop culture, we say things like, it's common to hear, I know he or she is in a better place now, or I know they're looking down on us right now, right? Have you ever heard things like that? But the question is, if there is an afterlife, if there is a heaven, if there is an eternal life, what's it going to be like? Will it be like, uh, you know, something out of a Far Side cartoon? If you guys, anyone remember Far Side? Loved those when I was growing up. Here's one with, uh, you know, it's on a mug here, but you see there's a guy in a white robe sitting on a cloud. He's got some wings, and he's just kind of looking around, and he says, I wish I brought a magazine. You know, it's the old school vision of heaven, and, uh, you know, we're going to do this forever and sit on a cloud, play a harp, whatever it might be. Well, thankfully, the Apostle John is going to tell us about eternal life, what it truly is, and I'm grateful it's very different than what happens in Death Becomes Her and very different than what this Far Side cartoon shows us. In verse 13 of chapter 5 in our section here today, John sums up the entire book of 1 John and what he's been trying to tell us. Here's what he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing this whole letter to his readers and to us so that he could accomplish this, that we would know that we have eternal life, that there would be an unshakable assurance in our relationship with Jesus. And he's going to share a few things that flow out of that assurance. So we're going to see today assurance and eternal life, assurance and prayer, and assurance and divine protection. Let's start with the last two. And we'll finish with the promise of eternal life. So first, in verses 14 and 15, John gives us some incredible promises that we can have assurance in our prayer. So here's what he says. Look at it with me. He says in verse 14, we can have confidence toward God in prayer. That word in Greek can also be translated as boldness, that word confidence. So we can have boldness when we come to God in prayer. Notice the next phrase. He says, we can ask anything of God. We'll see there's one qualification on that in a moment. But first, let's just stop and ponder how stunning and amazing that is. You know, if you know much about the Old Testament, the Old Testament is everything that came before Jesus came to earth, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. Then, and you know about how God revealed himself to the Israelites. This will really, truly amaze you. We're going to have the opportunity next week leading up to Easter to go through another Old Testament book, the book of Esther. It's going to be a great time together, a wonderful, beautiful story. But 
one of the reasons the Old Testament is so important because it gives all the backing, all the context, and all the pre-fulfillment, if you will, to what Jesus has accomplished and has done. So when you look at how God has revealed himself, revealed himself to the Israelites, there were a ton of parameters, right? You know much about it. There were over 600 religious laws in the Mosaic system that God handed down to Moses and then passed down. You can go read a ton of them, all of them, in Leviticus, Exodus, and the books surrounding that. These laws were given for the good of his people so they could know what they could and could not do. There were strict regulations that covered almost all of life because the reason they were given is because God in his holiness, in his perfection, if you would approach him, you could not because you were unclean. And so there were hundreds of laws to make you understand what would make you unclean so you could know whether or not you could approach God. And then on top of that, just like we are today, we're by nature rebels and idolaters, meaning we put our hope in something other than God to bring us true life and joy and happiness. The Israelites failed those laws over and over. So the results were they were impure, they were unclean, they were unholy. That's a problem when you're God's people, right? And you're continually approaching him and interacting with him and coming before him. So what had to be done? Well, that's the whole reason God set up the sacrificial system to his people, for his people, so they could understand this animal, whatever it might be, was having its blood spilled for you. Your sin brought this on, and ceremonially you receive forgiveness and cleansing so you can approach this holy God, even though technically the animals don't bring true and lasting forgiveness through their sacrifices. Does that make sense? This was done again and again and again, year after year. And it was done at the temple, in front of the people at the temple. And what was inside the temple, this beautiful, gorgeous, amazing building, the very presence of God was inside. There was a small inner room separated by a huge curtain where the presence, physical presence of God dwelled. So as the people of God came to the temple, they understood they were coming into the presence of God or approaching it. And yet they couldn't come all the way in because God was too holy, too perfect. And all these sacrifices needed to be done again and again just so they could get near the temple. There was only one person, the high priest, who would ever go into that inner room where the presence of God was, the room called the Holy of Holies. And if he didn't do something entirely correct, if he didn't do everything perfectly, he would drop dead. That's how holy and perfect God was. Unapproachable, distant, hidden away in this glorious temple. And we needed cleansing after cleansing after cleansing just to get close. And now, here comes John saying we can have boldness and confidence when we approach this God. So what in the world happened? That's amazing. If you approach God before Jesus came, approached the temple, went near the Holy of Holies, you would die. Now we can approach God with boldness. This is amazing news. This is the privilege of prayer. We can come to this almighty, holy, amazing God with boldness and confidence, not fearing him, but knowing now he wants to hear our requests. Well, why are we able to do that? This is how wonderful the sacrifice and grace of Jesus is. What he accomplished on the cross at the and at the resurrection was such a wonderful 
sacrifice, and victory that it brings forever cleansing for everyone who trusts in Jesus. He makes us eternally clean. The animal sacrifices only ceremonially cleansed people, but it didn't last. We still ended up being dirty, unclean, and unholy. But through Jesus now, we've all received everlasting cleansing, everlasting forgiveness. So the temple is now gone as a means to approach God. It was actually destroyed. Historically, the temple was destroyed in AD 70. It has not been rebuilt since in the same way because we would say the Holy Spirit, God's presence now dwells in us, his people. God has made us his temples, which we could spend so much time on and is mind-blowing just to consider. But now we are fully cleansed, fully holy, righteous before him. So what that leaves us as with all that wonderful work being done, it leaves us as children of a loving Father God who waits to hear our every requests that we bring to him. This is why John says we know that he hears us. Every second, if you trust Jesus and you love him, every second that you take to say a prayer in your bed, in your car, while your kids are screaming in the background, while you're at work, and it's a crazy day, or in the quiet of the night, or in the middle of a huge conflict, whatever is going on, God hears you, loves you, and wants to have you talk to him. This is what we have in prayer. This is the wonderful assurance that's ours. This should rid us of any thought that God doesn't want to hear from us, ever. Because of the cleansing work of Jesus, not because of how good we've been, not because we're great at walking with him, great at praying, great at being good people, but because of what Jesus did, even when we've seriously messed up again and again in our lives, even in the moments where now you're very convicted and very guilty about something that's gone on in your life, even then God wants to and desires to hear from you, to receive your confession. You know, it's easy for me anyway. It's easy for me to believe when things are going really well or I feel like I'm doing a, quote, good job with God, it's easy for me to pray and go, of course he wants to hear from me then because I'm doing really well. But when I'm especially guilty, when I'm especially um, convicted of something, I can often go, well, pff, you know, he's angry at me or doesn't want to hear that from me. But because of Jesus, we can know he's always wanting to hear from us and wanting us to come near and to pray and be close to him. Isn't that wonderful news? Now, John does give us a qualification, doesn't he? He says if we ask anything according to his will, he hears and answers us. This is very important, of course. Uh, how do we know then if we're praying according to his will? Well, here's my suggestion. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, you shouldn't bring to God in prayer. There's nothing you shouldn't pray about. Our first impulse of every day and every part of our day and every decision that we make, at least at the bare minimum, is to ask God for wisdom in our daily decisions, in big purchases, and big decisions that need to be made. But here's what we should do. We will know and understand God's will the more we read the scriptures, the more we read the Bible. This is how we grow. This is how God's will is revealed to us together as we read the scriptures and study them, and as you do it on your own, as we do it in community groups and elsewhere, then we will know more and more of his will and his desires. This doesn't mean 
we're going to know exactly what car to buy, what school to send your child to, what uh, promotion or not promotion to, to pursue at work. Uh, doesn't mean you're going to know everything you should do with every single aspect of your life, but it will give you the big picture things to pray for behind that, and it will help you understand what he wants out of all our decisions. So, for instance, we will know in the big picture and in our hearts we cannot put our hope in the car, the school, our kids, our money, our job, and so forth. So we'll say things like, when we pray about those things, Lord, thank you that everything I have you've given to me. That's something that we know from the scriptures. Like for the money, my kids, my savings, you've done it all. They're all yours, not ultimately mine. Help me not to treat them as if they can satisfy my heart. Remember that? We saw this verse at the end here. Keep yourselves from idols. Okay, God, I know your will is that I run from idols. I don't build my life and my happiness on other things. So help me to do that. Help me to spend wisely or deal with my kids wisely and help me to do so in a way that honors you. So we should bring everything to God in prayer. If you doubt about whether you should pray about something, don't. Just just pray about it. <laughs> Study and on top of that, study your Bible on your own, together with others, in all your life, and you'll know God's will more and more, and it'll start to affect the way you pray. So, John tells us we can have confidence God will hear our prayers, and then, as we pray according to His will, as we learn what that looks like, he says we can have confidence God will say yes, that God loves to answer our requests like that. He loves to give us wisdom for how to follow him. He loves to help us fight our sin. He loves to help us uh, have, make the right decisions and run from our idols and other things like that. He loves to help us raise our children well so we can honor him. John tells us we can know he's going to answer yes in decisions and in prayers like that. So pray. Find a way to pray. Find any way to pray. Do it in silence before you start your day. Do it together with your significant other. Uh, do it with your family if you have kids. We try to pray uh, with Piper on the way to school in the mornings. We just do kind of a repeat after me prayer, and we do it all together. It's super simple. There's nothing amazing about it. It really, really helps me to journal uh, my prayers, and so I have a little simple black journal. And a lot of days, not every day, but a lot of days I try to write down, Lord, here's what's going on. Here's what I need help in, you know. Uh, I pray before in the mornings on Sunday mornings when I get up before we come here I ask Lord give me wisdom help me to speak how you want me to help me to speak in power just simple things that we put out get your Bible out turn to the Psalms lots of prayers take place in there and lots of those you can just pray on your own for yourself when you see what's going on there sometime in the future we'll do a full message on prayer so we can really kind of get more practical because there's lots of practical things we can do and lots of things that will help us. But for now, we should know we can have incredible confidence and boldness to approach God in prayer. Now we have to stop and talk about verses 16 and 17, right? Because these have actually caused a lot of confusion and anxiety for people who trust Jesus through the years. The first part is not too hard. It seems to me in verse 16... John seems to be saying, look, if you know some Christian who's erring, starting to walk away from God, that's what John says is a sin not leading to death, 
then you should pray and God will give him life, which probably means something like God will help turn that person back. So practically, if you know someone that's kind of walking away from Jesus, that knows and trusts him, if you see someone in anthology, pray about that. Ask God to help that person turn them back, whatever, before you go and talk to them. Does that make sense? So far, so good. We should do that. We should put that into practice. But the confusion really comes in with the next part where it says there is a sin that leads to death. And the question is, what in the world does that mean? Can a Christian do it? That is very confusing. Well, here's the good news. Maybe it's not good news, but commentators through the centuries have not been clear on what this means. So if you're confused, they've been confused too. But there is some clues, I think, we can take away at least what it doesn't mean and probably get a good idea of some of what it means. So here's what I think based on my research. Remember, the whole book in the context John has been addressing, referring to people um, who have left these churches because they were teaching false things about Jesus and leading people astray. John says they don't really believe in Jesus. They don't believe he's the Christ, that he's really God himself. They don't love other Christians, and so we can have confidence they don't really know him. So most likely... John is referring to by a sin that leads to death is he's referring to these people. These people who have led people astray, it's bringing physical death on them. So John, in some way, is probably saying there may be a point where people are so far gone from actively denying Jesus and working against him and leading others astray from the truth that you may, may be time not to pray for them anymore or perhaps to pray differently for them. God's Spirit may direct you to not pray for them as if they're still Christians, but ask God to bring them to repentance in some other way. Does that make sense? So what the, the good news is, what this means, if you're trusting Jesus, walking with him, not denying who he is, not leading tons of other people astray, then you don't need to worry about committing this sin. Okay? If you're trying to walk with him and love him, you don't need to stress. Because, look, John here has been trying to encourage us in assurance, right? Trying to say, you have eternal life. You can know you have eternal life. So John would not stick something in that would try to give tons of people anxiety about whether they can know they are close to God or know him truly or not. Okay? Makes sense? Hopefully that helps. If you have more questions, you can talk to us afterwards. Second thing, John's going to show us we have assurance and divine protection. In verse 18, he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. On the surface, this sounds really similar to what John has said before. He said, if you know Jesus, you'll truly have a changed life. You won't continue in a willful, persistent pattern of sin. You'll have a measure of obedience, right? We've heard that. But then he adds this line, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, in English, this doesn't look very interesting, right? looks like, okay, he was born of God that probably, you know, myself, we protect, you know, ourselves and the evil one doesn't touch us because we're, you know, working hard at it. But up to this point, when John has said born of God, he's used it only to refer to us, right? And he's been using a specific tense in Greek, something called the perfect tense, which we talked about last week, if you were here. But in Greek, this second time, that he uses it when he says, he who is born of God protects him, John changes the tense for the first time. He changes it to a simple past tense 
instead of the perfect tense, like he's been using over and over before this. So why would John change up the tense he's using all of a sudden to a different one? Well, all the commentators agree that he's not, he does this because he's not referring to us anymore. Because John uses the simple past tense, he's describing the one who was forever born of God in eternity past. It refers to the one who is always born of God. Does that make sense? So John is not telling us it's our duty to keep ourselves safe and protected from the evil one. He's telling us Christians, don't keep on sinning and you won't keep on sinning and the evil one will not touch you, not because we protect ourselves, but because Jesus himself is protecting us. Isn't that great news and assurance? What else could give us more confidence in our walk with God, in our daily struggle with sin, when we go through hard times, when it seems like God is far from us, or we question what he's doing or whether he loves us, or we fear evil powers out there, what more could help us than to know Jesus himself is protecting us, the one who's eternally existed, loved perfectly by the Father, the one who breathed out the heavens and the earth and all of us, creating the galaxies with the power in his little pinky finger, <laughs> the one who knows every grain of sand on every beach in the world, who knows every hair on every head, and the one who defeated death, defeated Satan when he rose from the dead, the one who will one day crush Satan under his foot and punish him forever. This is the one who protects us and keeps us safe. What, what wonderful news. Isn't that amazing? How can you trust everything will be okay, that your sin will not conquer you, that God is for you and will carry you to the end when times seem hopeless? How do you know evil will not triumph in the end in our world, that oppression, that racism, that war, things like ISIS will not be the end of the story because Jesus protects us and keeps us? Well, the last thing is if that's not enough, we said we have assurance in eternal life. This whole letter has been written. Verse 13 says, so we can know we have eternal life. So as much as we know the moon revolves around the earth, as much as we know tomorrow the sun will rise, as much as we know that the 405 at 5 p.m. on Friday afternoon is hell on earth, <laughs> we would know we have eternal life. But like we talked about at the beginning of this message, what's that going to be like? Is it just going to be boredom forever? Well, John gives us a clue in verse 20 at the end here. First, he says, John tells us we can know the Son of God has come. Jesus has come, God himself, to us. And we didn't come up with understanding of who he is on our own. Just like we talked about being born of God, we didn't give ourselves understanding. John says he came and he gave it to us. And that's why we know him who is true. And we're in him and he's in us. And then John says something really interesting. He says, he is the true God, God of very God. And then he says, he is our eternal life. Jesus is our eternal life. Isn't that an amazing way to say what eternal life is? Jesus himself used a similar phrase in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. This is the prayer he says to the Father right before he's about to go to the cross. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is what he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, 
the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We have been given eternal life, and this eternal life is knowing God, knowing this Jesus forever and ever. This is why eternal life, which has been given now, given to you now if you trust and love Jesus, will never ever be boring. This is why it will never ever grow old. Because God's love is infinite, and what he showed to us in Jesus, his beauty that he showed to us, his infinite goodness and wonder will satisfy our hearts forever and ever and will never get old. Isn't that good news? It's good news that it's going to last forever. That's eternal life. Let me read you the greater picture that John himself gives us. This is selected verses from Revelation 21 and 22. It's the last two chapters of the Bible, but it's the first chapter of eternity for all of us who trust in Jesus. Much of it is metaphorical, but just listen to the overall picture that it paints. This is verse, chapter 21 of Revelation, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By this light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who's, who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the street, street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It will be this earth made new. It will be our bodies, but made new. No more sin, no more selfishness, no more pain, or cancer, or racism, or oppression, or strife, or deception, or injustice, only truth and harmony. Nothing accursed anymore forever and ever together in community with all those who love and trust Jesus. But the best part of the new heavens and the new earth 
of eternal life is that the dwelling place of God is with man. We will see Jesus face to face, the one who's done all he can to prove his love for you. We will see him and know him as he is forever and ever. This is what John wants us to know we have. He closes the entire book with keep yourselves from idols. What else could be our response when we see this wonderful God and all he's done and assured us? Keep ourselves from believing that anything else is going to satisfy our hearts ultimately. So let's do that anthology. Let's walk with him. Let's pray with great assurance. Let's remember the protection that we have. And let's go forth and tell the city how great and wonderful this king is. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Anthology Church of Studio City. For more information on Anthology, go to anthologychurch.com.